Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Here you go. Here you go. Merged. I don't know why I said it like a cow. Merged is the nothing personal word of the day. UFC, one of the great brands in the sports and business world, is merging with WWE in an announcement, an epic announcement that was of zero surprise to anyone who's been following either Dana White, Ari Emanuel, or Vince McMahon. Let's start with the latter, Vince McMahon, the 77-year-old, the same guy who had to step away, the same guy who bought the WWE from his father for a million dollars, sort of like a Trump and Trump Jr. and Trump Sr. situation, not politically necessarily, but he buys the WWE, he builds it up, all of a sudden he is scorched earth in his past, inappropriate, lawsuits, payoffs, disappears from the company, reappears as though he had undergone some sort of physical change, but reappears and says, I'm gonna steward this company through a sale. People are lining up who's gonna buy WWE. Wait a minute, Samson, they're not gonna sell. Of course they're gonna sell. It's called estate planning. It's time for Vince McMahon to spread the wealth while building more. So they're going out and saying we're for sale. So they hire myriad investment banks, all of whom it's their job to find what they call in the business, a strategic partner. What that is code for is go find the company who will pay us the most money. It can be a broadcast company, it can be a cable company, it can be an entertainment company, or it can be some sort of agency. Let's cut two years past when Endeavor takes over UFC, buys UFC from Dana White. Dana White, another character, basically cashes in and then becomes a shareholder and a principal in a company where they're running UFC and they're building it up and they're making money and they're not paying their fighters and he is P.T. Barnum and leading the charge. Then they look around and say, WWE is for sale. What could we do if we combine the UFC and the WWE? Two totally different sports, or are they? Two sports that are not scripted, or are they? Two sports that have massive TV deals, or do they? Yes, they do. Massive marketing, massive appeal over a massive swath of the world. We're talking like football type of worldwide popularity, and I don't mean American football. I'm talking the soccer kind. There is something about watching two men or two women beat each other up that for whatever reason, it doesn't matter what color you are, what language you speak, what side of the hemisphere you're on, which way your toilet flushes, it doesn't matter. You love to see it. God, it goes back to Coca's favorite tat. There's something about gladiators. There's something about watching it happen. 
my God, I want to bet on it. And boy, I don't want to do that, but it's fun to watch it done to someone else. The ultimate in voyeurism is WWE, right? And UFC. So here's what happens. They enter into discussions and the way discussions work is solely based on who's gonna have the power once this conversation's done. There's an acquiring company and an acquirer company. When you are the acquired, that means that you are being swallowed up by another company. Some people call it a merge. A merge is when two companies, which are in theory equal, I went through a merge when Morgan Stanley merged with Dean, was it Morgan Stanley, Stanley Dean Witter? Can you imagine I'm going back 25 years? I believe that was a merger back when I was at Morgan Stanley. And the biggest discussion was who's bringing the most to the merger? And the most is defined as revenue, net income, and growth. Then you look at the people who are in charge of each of the two merged companies, because you can only have one person in charge. And then you have to look at who's gonna own the majority of the merged company. Because doing a 50-50 thing, doing a co-president thing, doing a co-CEO thing, it does not work. You have to have a chain of command and you have to have it even when there are people who are gonna be lower in the chain of command than they've ever been. So you sit and negotiate that side by side to what the actual value is, to what the actual price is. You argue back and forth. We're bringing this to the deal, but we're bringing that to the deal. The UFC says, listen, with Endeavor, and I'm gonna use UFC, but I really mean Endeavor. UFC says, when they're sitting with Vince, do you have any idea what we can do for you from a media rights standpoint? Do you have any idea the value we create by being merged with you, that we're gonna go do new TV deals together and one plus one is gonna equal three. The sum is gonna be greater than our parts. And then Vince responds, but without us, your growth is at 8% and we're gonna make your growth 14%. Without us, the total value of your company is gonna be 12 billion and not 21 billion. And I'm not making those numbers up because the actual value post-merger, according to the release yesterday, is that there's gonna be a new public company trading under the letters TKO, get it? And it's gonna be worth $21 billion. That is their estimate. For those of you wondering, when you have a company going public, you assign a value to the company, but at the end of the day, it is the market that will decide the value of the company. Vince McMahon cannot stand up and say that WWE is worth $9 billion. Dana White cannot stand up and say that UFC is worth $12 billion. Combined, we're a $21 billion company. They can assign that value and then they can price the shares accordingly, but when they go public, the shares that do, and it's only a percentage of the shares that go public because the lion's share of the shares are owned by the principals. So not when a company goes public, not every share becomes public, of course, because the principals own the majority of the shares. That said, when the public gets in there and buys the shares, the market will go up or it will go down. It's like asking what's the value of Facebook. You can only ask that when you look at a particular moment in time. You add up the number of shares outstanding times the price per share. That is the rough way to give the enterprise value of the company that's publicly traded. And of course, the shares 
change value every second. So you have to take a snapshot at a moment and say that's our value. So one of the things that they stood up and announced when they did this merger is this is a $21 billion company. This is a company that is worth roughly what someone said, what all the NHL teams are combined, just shy of that. This is some a company that's gonna use its power and resources in order to go after different countries and make their sports global. Really what this was, was a merger of synergies. And that's what you're hoping for when you merge two companies. What can we do to make more money by both increasing revenue and cutting expenses? What they did during the course, that's why when you see mergers like Viacom CBS, or when uh, Turner and Discovery, when all these companies merge and all of a sudden you've got layoffs, the reason for that is one of the things that helps you make money after you acquire a company or merge with a company is that you look at people doing the same job for each company and then you combine the departments and fire half the people. So the people who remain do twice as much, sometimes for half the pay. So the other thing that they sit around and discuss other than how many shares are gonna be owned by each, by each side, by each of the principals, you have to decide who's gonna be in charge. In this case, it was made clear that Ari Emanuel, the head of Endeavor, the chairman of Endeavor, is going to be the chairman and the, of this new company. Under the new company, TKO, TKO, there will be two different silos. One will be WWE, and that will be run by Nick Khan, who is the current CEO, and one will be UFC, which will be run by Dana White. That means that Dana White and Nick Khan have to be in a room together, and they have to figure out ways not just to operate their separate companies, but now they're reporting up into a different, larger company that contains both of their departments, because that's what the UFC is now. It's just a department. And you could argue, well, David, UFC has been a department of Endeavor since Endeavor bought it. Nah, UFC, if you ask Dana White, has been an independent company that basically is being financed by Endeavor. It was sort of him cashing out. I'm not sure that he was answering to Ari Emanuel. I'm also not sure that Nick or Dana understand when you are a public company, there is a whole different level of disclosure. There's a whole different level of what you have to do, how you have to act. You can't just start paying off people because of assaults, right? So Vince is gonna have to behave. He's the executive chairman of the board. That's his title. When someone is named the executive chairman of a board of a combined company, that's the easy way of, of putting them out to pasture. Vince McMahon with this deal is going back out to pasture as though it was when he stepped away from the company. That's the reality of it. Remember WWE, that's the daughter of Vince McMahon who was running the company and then left after Vince came back because she didn't wanna be a part of what WWE was doing. It'll be interesting to see what role she may have going forward if she gets back into the fold, given that her father is really getting a title that will not come with much juice. So I'm interested to see what's gonna happen here because we're gonna know relatively quickly whether this merger makes sense. WrestleMania, 
which just happened at SoFi Stadium. I don't know if you were paying attention, but it was a record-breaking. They generated $22 million of ticket sales over a two-night event. Just a dream for any company to have this sort of live event ability. They come off WrestleMania. They make this announcement of what they're doing with UFC. But at the end of it all, what shareholders care about is not a WrestleMania. They don't care about what's going on with the power struggle between White and Khan, between the McMahons and Endeavor, between the McMahons and Dana, between Dana and Tony, all of those things, they are going to be evaluated by shareholders and there will be a value assigned whether it's actually a positive or whether it's actually a negative. And people who are spinning to you all the great synergies of this merger, how amazing it's gonna be. Look at the statements that everyone made. Guess what? We get to decide. The marketplace gets to decide. So I would say congratulations are in order to Ari and to Dana and to Vince, but it really is a wait to see. All right, Coca, play me some music. You know what I want? <laughs> I wanna talk to Samson. So you want to talk to Samson. Thank you, Matthew. That's from the movie Half-Baked. We are live on Nothing Personal with David Samson YouTube channel. We are at 8 a.m. So my guess is that some of you may be a quarter baked. I hope none of you are fully baked, depending on your time zone. But either way, there's a character named Samson in the movie Half-Baked. And if you have a question, get to me on Twitter. Here we go. Hello, David. I love when questions start that way. Side note. Did you see that the Angels let go one of their employees who criticized them in the media? Have you ever done that? Would you do that? Well, thank you very much for asking that question. Let me give you the background. There was one mistake in your question, and I'll get to that first. It's not actually employees of the team, but let's not quibble over wording. It's a great topic. Artie Moreno, we've talked about on this show, Artie Moreno, whose team is for sale. Artie Moreno, who took his team off the market. Wink, wink, it's not off the market because he loves the fans, wants to bring a championship to Southern California. Wink, wink, that's not true. He wants to get a bigger price than he was able to get. Artie Moreno is known around baseball as being several things. One, extraordinarily involved. Two, extraordinarily thin-skinned. He's not alone. That ownership group, many owners for these professional sports, when they get into a room, it is a race to the top of the insecurity list. It is the most bizarre thing. These are wealthy men. In some cases, billionaires outside of their interest in sports ownership. But they read everything. They surround themselves with people whose job it is to tell them who's saying something bad, how many minutes of time they get on SportsCenter or CBS Sports HQ, who's talking about what, when, and where, what's going on in the clubhouse. We all have moles in the clubhouse so we can get reports about who's talking about what in the training room or in the, in the visiting clubhouse, in the home clubhouse. We wanna know what people are saying. This is one of the biggest issues I had with our owner because he was thin-skinned like everybody was, and I was the opposite, so I was happy to take all the heat, all the bullets. I was happy to be his meat shield, as the commissioner is for owners, as team presidents are for owners, because owners, one of the great benefits of ownership, one of the great perks, is that you get to pretend that you're beloved, and when you're not, you get to fire people so you can blame them for the reason that you're not beloved. 
about 24 years ago, 24 years ago now. Yesterday, by the way, was the 23rd anniversary of my first game ever in baseball. April 3rd, 2000, a 10-4 loss to the Los Angeles Dodgers at Olympic Stadium on opening day in the year 2000. Michael Barrett made a couple errors and Kevin Brown shoved up Keister and Dustin Hermanson gave it up. And anyway, so when MLB.com was formed, one of the things that it became was a place for streaming and the back office called BAMTech ends up running other websites like NHL.com, like MLB.com and got purchased by Disney for the billions of dollars that got distributed to the owners. That's only part of what Bob Bowman and the rest created. The other part was the website that you've come to know where you can read articles, where you can read about your team, you can go through the rosters, you can go through the schedule and every team got assigned to it an MLB.com reporter. They were a credentialed reporter who would be in the clubhouse and they would be a beat writer. A beat writer used to be an independent newspaper who assigned a writer to write about your games and to write game notes and to give information to your fans. And we would need the beat writers because it was the only way that we would get any sort of media attention prior to social media. It was in the newspaper. Then Twitter started, then blogs started, then all sorts of streaming started, and it became less about deadlines for newspapers and more about being first with information and trying to control your information as best as possible through your own PR department. Here's the thing. MLB.com always presented itself as independent. We are owned by the league, they would say. We are not employees of the team specifically. But in the real world, that's not how it worked. MLB.com is owned 130th by each of the 30 Major League Baseball teams. Every owner has the right to call the commissioner and demand that their MLB.com reporter gets fired or that someone gets hired, or that coverage on MLB Network, which is also owned by the 30 teams, is equal, or that teams are discussed in certain ways. Owners watch it, they pay attention to it, they try to control what's going on at CBS and ESPN, or Fox, but they can't. But with MLB Network and MLB.com, they can. That doesn't mean the quality of the people who work for those networks is less than the quality of people who work for other networks. It means that they have to be much more careful about what they say, that they're being watched under a much greater microscope, and they are subject to discipline in a way that by definition makes them not impartial. MLB.com reporters are partial. I'm sorry, but they are. And they know it, they just won't admit it. So Artie Moreno did something that many teams have done, and he decided that we're not getting enough money for our radio rights. We are going to buy a radio station and use that as a way to get our games, push them out, we'll keep the revenue, we'll pay the expenses, but owning an AM network makes sense. AM 830 and Los Angeles is a team-owned radio network, and they had a show called Beat Reporter Roundtable, which is a bunch of people who work for a bunch of different papers who get together and they talk about the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. 
Well, it turns out that one of them is an Angels beat writer for The Athletic, which is a totally independent operated website with unbelievable writers all across the board. If you're not a subscriber, you should be. It is quality writing from Ken Rosenthal and Jason Stark to Evan Drellick to Sam Blum. All teams have beat writers for The Athletic. Many teams do, not all. They do in-depth investigative pieces. Everything's good. Sam Blum was asked to be on this Angels team-owned radio network beat reporter roundtable, and all of a sudden word came down from Artie Moreno, wink, wink, that he was no longer going to be invited to be a part of the beat reporter roundtable. Artie Moreno got word that on this roundtable there were some criticisms of the Angels. Now I'm just spitballing here. Is it a criticism to say that Mike Trout hasn't won a playoff game? Is it a criticism to say that the Angels have the longest drought in the American League without making the playoffs? Or do they? Maybe tied with the Tigers. Or maybe the longest, I'm not sure which, Coca. Is it wrong to criticize that the signings they've had, that Anthony Rendon has been an unmitigated disaster? Is it wrong to say that whoever the GM is, whoever the team president is, whoever the owner is, whoever the head of marketing is, whoever the head of sales is, everyone has combined to not deliver to fans what they'd want over the course of a decade. None of that's wrong, but it's a team-owned radio station. So Artie Moreno calls up his team president, much like I've gotten the call many times from the team owner saying, call this network, get this person off the air, get them to say something different, say something nicer. Sometimes I'd make the call, sometimes I would say I made the call. You can't call and complain about something that's true when it's an independent network. When it's something that you own, you absolutely have the right to do whatever you want with that show. So Artie Moreno has every right to call John Carpino and say, listen, tell Sam Blum that if he doesn't shape up and start being nice to me and the team, I am no longer going to employ him to be on our radio station. People are complaining does he have the right to do that? Yes, he does. But what he doesn't have the right to do is have anyone listen to that show or any other bit of programming on that network, on that radio station, and have anyone believe that anything that is being said is anything other than propaganda. There's no difference between that and state-owned channels in Russia or China and you think I'm going too far, I promise you I'm not. That is how involved team owners get in what is on their stations. Why do you think there's such an issue when a team owner owns a newspaper, as an example? And why do you think team owners like John Henry go so far out of their way to say, yes, we own the newspaper in Boston? But let me tell you something, we are not involved in any way. They have total editorial control. Whatever they wanna write about, they can write about. They can do an entire article about how much I suck. Okay. I'm trying to think back the last time I read a hit piece on John Henry. Hmm. Not that there should be, he's won four World Series, but I think you get where I'm going here. You can say it's independent all you want, but you know that when you own something, you do not want to be criticized by that which you own. That is normal. Do you think that, uh, I'm an analyst on CBS Sports or the podcast is now part of the Metalark family. 
Do you think that I could actually sit here and tell you something about John Skipper, Dan Lemitard? I'm not an employee. I'm an independent contractor at Metalark. They have leased nothing personal for a period of whatever years it is. If I have something to say about something they've done that I don't agree with, I'm gonna say it. And the reason I'm gonna say it is that I own nothing personal. And if they don't agree with what I'm doing, then they can get rid of the agreement we have and I'll take nothing personal to another platform. The freedom I have is in the ownership of what I have. That is how you become free. The beat reporters who are on this station, on this channel, they're not free to talk about whatever they want. As much as they would like to be critical or as much as they would like to think they have that freedom, they don't. Do I blame Artie Moreno for telling Sam Blum that he cannot appear anymore? I do not. But do I blame Jeff Fletcher, who is an Angels beat writer who came out and said, I have told the Angels that I will no longer appear on the show because I'm going to support Sam Blum. Do I agree with Jeff Fletcher doing that? Of course I do, except as Jeff Fletcher, who I've never met, does he think that prior to this moment that Artie Moreno wasn't paying attention or that he had the freedom to say anything he wanted? What about Rhett Bollinger? He's the MLB.com reporter. He replied to a tweet that Jeff Fletcher said he's not going to appear and Rhett Bollinger said, same, I'm not appearing either. Let's follow that one if you don't mind because Artie Moreno has the right to call the commissioner or someone in the commissioner's office and say, hey, I really don't want Rhett to be the MLB.com reporter on the Angels beat. I think we need someone new because I want someone on our radio station. I want someone commenting on a radio station. We have to fill programming hours. So the fact that the independent Fletcher and Blum are able to leave or be told to leave, but that Bollinger does it in recognition of his brethren, they are looked at differently within baseball and by ownership. It's a fascinating story. I'm not in any way critical, in any way critical of what anybody did in this instance. Artie Moreno has the right to do it. I wish he didn't hide behind his team president. Fletcher has the right to say he's done with it. But you as the audience, make sure you understand when you're listening to things, not just in sports, in business, in politics, everywhere. Most times people with a microphone have an agenda. And the reason why you like this show is what agenda do I have? Except you listening and telling your friends that we're having fun and you're learning stuff. That's it. I don't answer to anybody and I love it. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're gonna review a movie that I watched that was a really important movie that I'd never heard of. And then we're gonna talk a little bit about what happened with uh, Anthony Rendon because uh, it's important to note that you cannot ever put your hands on a fan. Hard stop. We'll be right back. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
Welcome back to Nothing Personal. Thank you for making it through the gauntlet of Metal Arc-based commercials if you're listening to this. If you're watching this, I'm not exactly sure what's happening, but either way, we're live Monday through Friday. 8 a.m. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Rate, review, keep doing the things you do. Subscribe to the YouTube. Hi, my name's David Sampson. Welcome to Nothing Personal. I watched a movie called Palm Trees and Power Lines. Palm Trees and Power Lines I found on Amazon. It stars the brother from that great show that you guys told me about called Kingdom, who played one of the sons, and I can't remember the actor's name, but it's really a movie about a girl, a young girl, an underage girl, who falls in love with an older man, and it turns out that this older man has nefarious intentions with her. And it turns out that this person uh, actually is evil. And you feel the tension and you're not exactly sure what is wrong, but you realize this is not an ordinary May, December romance. You realize that something's a little off in the attention that he is giving to this young girl. It is equally creepy and scary when you find out what is going on. And I'm not going to ruin it, except what I am going to say is this. One thing we all have to be on the lookout for, and it started with Secretary Jay Johnson, Homeland Secretary in airports or train stations with see something, say something. That is such a great expression. And we talked about it a little bit on a previous show when we said, if you see something and you say something, you better be right about what you saw or the fact that you said something could come back to haunt you. And that stops people from saying something when they see something. And that is a very upsetting problem because it should not be an issue or a crime or any sort of liability of any kind when you call in something that you've seen that doesn't seem right, even if it ends up being right, you should be absolutely untouchable for having brought attention to something that just didn't feel right to you. So I'm gonna go with, if you see something, make sure you think you see what you are actually seeing and then say something. And when you watch this movie, please do, Palm Trees and Power Lines, it's beautifully done, it is well-written, it is disturbing, but it's important to pay attention because if you see something like this, man, you gotta say something. Anthony Rendon tweeted about this. I don't think we cover this on Nothing Personal. He plays for the Anaheim Angels of Los Angeles. He's the one who is making like $35 million this year. He never plays. He's hurt all the time. He was great for Washington. Then Anaheim signed him and all of a sudden he's been hurt and it's like he's stealing money. This is not Artie Moreno not trying to win. This is him signing the best position player, free agent of that year. He got the best, except he ends up being the worst. So the Angels are hoping he can be healthy, hoping he comes back, hoping he can help the team win this year in what may be the final year of Shohei Otani, in what's another year of Mike Trout. Opening series, they're in Oakland. Anthony Rendon is walking off the field. The way Oakland works, it's very bizarre. There's a, uh, it's a football stadium and it's so gross. It's, it's way grosser than the old pro player. And uh, you have to walk from behind the visiting dugout. You sort of walk on an angle and you're walking below the bleachers and you're going to the bowels of the sewer infested, rat infested stadium. Yes, they need a new one. They've needed one for 15 years. Rendon was walking by 
and there was a fan who was heckling him. The fan may have been swearing at him. The fan may have been calling him a female dog. Whatever the fan was doing, Rendon stops him, and actually, he's elevated, the fan is. And if you look at this video, you see what Rendon is doing. He's talking up to the Oakland A's fan, and then he swipes at him. So just so we're clear of what happened, Rendon is the player. He's holding his shirt with his left hand. You see that? He's tugging at it, and then he tries the swipe. The minute that happened, MLB was going to suspend him. You cannot touch a fan. The players are told this preseason and spring training. The players are told this by the team president, by the GM. We understand that you buy a ticket, you have the right to heckle. We have the right to give you the rules. You can't swear, we can kick you out for swearing. You can't throw things, we can kick you out for throwing things. But if you wanna tell us how much we stink, if you wanna tell you how much we have a bad eye, how much we waste money, how much we can't hit, you have the right to do all of that. And in return, the players have the right to do nothing back to you. Some players don't follow that rule. Anthony Rendon had obviously had enough because he's sensitive about the fact that, hey, he has not been good recently, but the players are told it will be an automatic suspension. I went on Twitter to say he's gonna be suspended and people were like, no, I don't think he's gonna be suspended. Of course he's gonna be suspended. MLB will not have a run or test situation, nor will the NBA anymore, nor will the NFL. You do not touch a fan. It doesn't matter what the fan does. I've given the example to players. If you see someone in the stands who has had sex with your wife, you may not touch that fan. That's the extreme. If that person has come to you and said to you that I lost money because of you, or I'm gonna ruin your life, or I'm doing this with your wife or your friend, it doesn't matter. That's how extreme it is. No touch. When pitchers touch fans, remember when they get five games and they're a starting pitcher, the way MLB works as they figure out how long a suspension will be, a five-game suspension for a starting pitcher is really a one-start miss. It's really a one-game suspension. A five-game suspension for a closer is looked at as a two- to three-game suspension because you figure a closer doesn't throw five days in a row. A position player who gets five games, that's looked at as a five-game suspension. What MLB does is when they decide what they're going to do to a player, they know there's a process where the player through the union, here's the suspension, can either start serving the suspension immediately or appeal. An appeal means that an independent arbitrator, sometimes the commissioner, sometimes an independent arbitrator, there's a hearing, like with evidence, and it takes time and money and energy. Much like with the steroid suspensions, the PED suspensions, where you sometimes hear the player took the settlement. He took the penalty of 80 games he did not appeal. Or the domestic violence, they took the 40-game suspension. They did not appeal. That means it was a negotiated settlement. Sometimes you negotiate as part of the CBA, like with PEDs. If you're caught once, it's 80. Twice, 160. Three times life. You can appeal whether or not you have PEDs in your system, whether or not the test was positive, whether or not the chain of custody was right, Ryan Braun, but once you are guilty of PEDs, it has been negotiated what the suspension will be. 
and that is codified in the CBA. When it comes to domestic violence, the amount of the suspension is not codified. The process is. What MLB will do is they will go to the player in the union and say, let's come up with a number that you'll agree to so we don't have to appeal. And that's what Anthony Rendon, the union and MLB did. He got five games. Then instead of the official appeal, they knocked it down to four games. Rendon agreed to accept it and he will start serving immediately and miss the next four games. That's it. That's the process of how it works. And it's not where if he gets suspended again for touching a fan, where it automatically goes from four games to eight games or four games to 12 games. It's not like PEDs where the steps are in the CBA, 8160 lifetime. It's not like that with domestic violence where it's 10 games, then 30, then 50. It's not like that. It's always an independent review. That's why it took a bunch of days. You interview the player, you interview the witness, you interview the, the fan involved if you can find them. Then you speak to the commissioner, then the commissioner deals with the union, then the union deals with the player, then they come up with a number and then they announce it. So that's what happened. So if you wanna know how you work through it, that's how you work through it. Anthony Rendon, four games, see you later. Okay. In 2003, when we won the World Series, I remember so clearly, we were in the locker room, we were celebrating. First, let me go back to winning the pennant, actually. This is true, in Wrigley Field, where we've won the pennant. And I remember one of the first things I thought was, oh my God, Jack McKean is gonna get to manage next year's All-Star Game. That is one of the rewards you get for winning the pennant is that you manage the all-star team of your league the following year. And I remember saying to the coaching staff, hey, you guys are all-star coaches. It's really cool. The manager of the Cubs at the time was Dusty Baker. He lost the pennant. He did not get to manage the all-star game the next year. He just didn't. Then we won the World Series. And I remember thinking to myself, not only do we now have to plan a parade and design a ring, but we get to go to the White House. George Bush was the president at the time. George Bush, former owner of the Texas Rangers. George Bush was a huge baseball fan. I'd been lucky enough to meet George Bush plenty of times within baseball. Not look at me, Louis. I just was lucky enough to spend plenty of time with him. And being around a president, no matter what your political views are, there, it used to be this way, it is just awe-inspiring. You just feel this energy of power. It's hard, to, uh, it's hard to describe. But the thought after winning the World Series is, we're going to the White House. So we made this plan and we all went to the White House and we spent many hours with Governor Bush at the time, who was George's brother, who was the governor of Florida who came, and Mayor Manny Diaz, he came and, we spent time with Bush and he was talking to us about baseball and the White House staffers were ushering him along because he was late to whatever he was late to, but he wanted to watch the game. I mean, he wanted to talk to us about how he did watch the game on Air Force One, by the way. He was flying somewhere during game six, but he watched every pitch, or at least he was briefed as though he watched every pitch. Can you imagine just for one second, if we're standing at the White House, I'm next to Pudge and we're taking pictures and everything's really cool and he's talking and giving a speech and in comes Derek Jeter. Are you kidding me? We beat the Yankees. You don't get to go to the White House when you lose. 
Yesterday, Dr. Jill Biden, the first lady, came out and said she wants the Iowa women's basketball team to go to the White House with the LSU basketball team. You cannot be serious. Either you win or you lose. Only winners go to the White House. Hard stop. LSU shouldn't have to share that moment with the losing team. I wouldn't have wanted to share that moment with the Yankees and Joe Torre, who I love. No, this is a moment for Jack and for us. I agree that Caitlin Clark's a great player. I agree that Iowa's a great team. I agree that 9 million people watched the game and there was great interest in women's basketball is super happy and they're going to try to grow from that. I agree with all of it. That doesn't mean you go to the White House. It can't be real. If Joe Biden is smart, he's got a chief of staff or a head of communications who has called up the first lady's chief of staff and said, listen, you may want to walk that back just a tad because there's no way that a president is going to change the precedent where you allow losers to go with winners. Is that harsh of me? Why is it wrong to say there's winners and losers? That's life, folks. I'm not into the whole participation trophy. Hey, congratulations, you're on a Little League team. You get a trophy at the end of the year. Horse hockey. Either you win or you lose. If you win, you get a trophy. What do you show your kids? Look at that trophy I got because I showed up every Tuesday and Thursday at 5 p.m. and played five innings. Boy, that's a great valuable lesson to teach people. It doesn't matter if you win or lose. It's how you play the game. I never once said that to anyone on my team in 18 years, and I couldn't stand it when someone said it to me. It's not how you win or lose. Pat Riley has it right. There's winning and there's misery. Vince Lombardi may have had it right. Winning is everything. The White House has it right. Winners go to see the president and do the jersey exchange. It's not going to happen. It can't. The first lady can say it all she wants. There is no way that any advisor to the current president is going to allow Iowa to go to the White House with LSU. If they want to go to the White House separate from LSU, go online and buy a ticket to a tour. Nothing personal pick of the day. We got it right. 45 and 49, we had Connecticut seven and a half over San Diego State. I think the final line was seven. I think they won by 17. Not a terrible showing for San Diego State by any stretch. It shows FAU people now get to say, this is what I love. When there's a last second shot that you lose on, and then the team that you lose to just by a bit loses by a lot, you actually say to yourself, God, if he had not hit that shot, we wouldn't have lost by that much to Connecticut. We would have beaten them. You get to say that. Even though mathematically you'd say, well, if that shot hadn't go in by Butler, and we were in the finals, we would have also been seven and a half point underdogs, and we would have likely lost by the same 17 because we're so close to SDSU. But that's not how teams think or people think. Like, God, if that had just been us, we would have nailed it. But the baseball season is a joke. Uh, the Yankees are good, fine, but the Phillies are really one of the two winless teams. Is that possible? The Phillies are 0-4. Wait, there may only be one winless team now. I think there's two undefeated teams. The Twins are undefeated, the Rays are undefeated, and the Phillies are the only team that hasn't won. Did you have that on your bingo card? Because I sure as heck didn't. Phillies over Yankees was a loss. Connecticut over SDSU was a win. So we went one and one, we're 45 and 49. I got a game tonight. We're gonna take the Braves over the Cardinals. The Braves on the road. 
Now, you may be thinking I picked the Cardinals to win the division. Yes. You may be thinking that I picked the Braves to go to the World Series. Yes. Therefore, Braves over Cardinals. Or you may be thinking that I like the Cardinals to win the game, but I'm doing so badly with the baseball picks that I want you to fade me. So I'm going to say Braves over Cardinals, assuming you're going to take Cardinals over Braves. And then I'm going to say I lost tomorrow when in fact you all won. Or the Braves are going to beat the Cardinals. I'm going to get the win. And then I get to say I'm back. The way I did it either way, I'm a winner. Which way are you going to go? Braves over Cardinals. All right, to close this show, I got to cover a topic here. And I'm going to talk about it briefly. We only have two minutes and Coca doesn't like when I rush a topic, but I have to do it quickly. It's about baseball and it's about numbers. A, a word came out that the New York Yankees are trying to figure out how to assign numbers to players. The way players get numbers is when they show up to spring training, they work with the clubhouse manager. Sometimes if you're not a big prospect, if you're a recent call up, the clubhouse actually assigns you a number. You can request a number if you want, but the clubhouse manager has the final say. The clubhouse manager knows what numbers it's not allowed to give, which equal the retired numbers plus the numbers that the front office says are not retired, but they don't want given to just an ordinary call up that they're saving for a top prospect or they're saving for a trade that may happen for a player who wears a certain number, or it's the number already assigned to a player on the roster. So players get their numbers. Coaches are the last people who get to choose their numbers as our managers. The way it works is that whatever numbers are left, that's what coaches will get. The New York Yankees have 15 retired numbers. They're literally running out of numbers to give. Anthony Volpe got number 11, it is my belief that that may be the smallest number available that's not retired. The Yankees went to MLB and said, can we stop giving our coaches numbers on their uniforms? We need the numbers for players. I never thought of this once. It's brilliant. Why do coaches need numbers anyway? Put the name on the back of the jersey, put the logo of the team on the back of the jersey, put an advertisement on the back of the jersey, and then their coaches. They don't need numbers. NFL coaches don't have numbers. They're not in uniform. NBA coaches don't have numbers. They're not in uniform. MLB coaches only had numbers because they were in uniform. I agree that anyone that is in between the lines should be in uniform. And the rule has been that anyone who goes to in between the lines, which are managers to make a pitching change or pitching coaches, or sometimes first and third base coaches, all of them should have numbers. I say, forget it. They don't need numbers. And now that it's been brought up to MLB, it makes perfect sense. Managers are still gonna wear uniforms. That part's not gonna change because there's something great about that, even though they don't look great in them, all of them, not Gabe Kapler, but what's going to change and the Yankees have started this. And if this were brought to a vote, I would be a yes, even though I hate agreeing with the Yankees on anything, take numbers away from coaches and managers. This way, all teams will have access to more numbers. Although it matters to the Yankees more. It's brilliant. It's just business. We'll be back tomorrow. This is nothing personal. <laughs> Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, 
you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.